Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice brought to you by GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined by our senior reporter Luke Haynes and our news editor Nick Bostock. Coming up, we discuss some of the key news stories from the past fortnight. We'll be talking about COVID-19 booster and flu jabs and looking at what the plans for both campaigns mean for general practice this autumn. We'll also be looking at what changes to COVID restrictions mean for primary care, including changes to rules around self-isolation, the use of face masks and standard operating procedures. We've got a slightly longer podcast than usual because later in the show, I'll be talking to Dr. Gail Olsop, the RCGP's clinical lead for clinical policy, who's been at the forefront of the college's work on long COVID. It's a really fascinating chat about the condition, how it's impacting on general practice and the support that's currently available for patients. And finally, as usual, we'll be highlighting some good news, which this week relates to the government plans to extract all GP patient data for research and planning purposes. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. Last week, the government issued details of this year's flu campaign and NHS England published details of the COVID-19 booster vaccination programme, both of which are due to start in September. The COVID booster campaign is currently being planned as if both flu and COVID jabs can be given together. However, the JCVI is not expected to make final recommendations on whether this can happen until later in the summer. NHS England has also said that COVID-19 boosters cannot be given at practice level and must continue to be administrated at PCN-designated sites, all of which is obviously leading to a real planning headache for GP practices. Nick, first off, why has NHS England said that practices can't deliver the COVID boosters within their individual surgeries? NHS England said it wasn't operationally feasible largely because the supply chain can't handle an expansion of deliveries to individual practice sites rather than a smaller number of PCN sites. And they've also mentioned the possibility that the characteristics of the vaccines being used could require working at scale, which looks like a reference to the fact that some of the COVID-19 vaccines are very fragile and difficult to transport. Why might this cause some problems alongside what's set to be the biggest flu campaign ever? So GPs have been calling for a long time for greater freedom to deliver COVID vaccines at practice level. Uh, As you mentioned, this year, the flu campaign is going to cover 35 million people. It's the biggest cohort ever. Uh, And GPs are still waiting for final confirmation on whether flu jabs and COVID jabs can be administered at the same time. But interim advice from the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation suggests that is likely to be possible. Initially, that seemed like great news for practice because they've been really concerned about the potential workload impact of delivering millions of COVID booster jabs alongside a huge flu campaign if the two have to be completed separately. GP practices are hugely experienced at delivering flu vaccination campaigns efficiently every year to their patient populations. And the idea of bolting COVID boosters onto that process was one that many practices would have felt comfortable with. But now that NHS England has said COVID boosters have to be done at PCN level, that leaves practices in a really difficult position. So rather than fitting COVID boosters into the annual flu vaccination model, they may have to work out how to deliver their flu jabs at PCN sites instead. So the one bit of the process practices have years of experience at could be completely disrupted. And GPs are warning this looks like a planning nightmare because it'll mean practices have to move doses of flu vaccine to the PCN sites and try to make sure that they have the right types of flu vaccine to go to patients in different risk groups, along with the right types of COVID vaccine for their booster jabs. Uh, There's also the issue of flu and COVID booster jabs going to slightly different groups, which adds more confusion. And then there's the fact that the practices have only until the 28th of July to opt in to deliver COVID boosters, by which time they may still not know for sure exactly how delivery of the two vaccination programmes will fit alongside each other. 
So, Luke, you've been speaking to some clinical directors about this. Do you get the impression that lots of PCNs are going to sign up to, to do the COVID boosters? So from those I've spoken to, it seems like the majority are going to sign up to phase three. Although um, I think as we touched on, GPs are a bit disappointed that NHS England won't allow them to vaccinate on an individual practice basis. Something which I think the BMA said that it ignores the voice of GPs and, and how they're feeling about it. There is a general feeling among uh, general practices that um, I've spoken to and their teams that they just want to get the job done. Um, and they've conducted sort of three quarters of, um, of all jabs so far. So there's almost a sense of duty among the workforce that um, they want to offer these booster jabs in the autumn to ensure that their patients are protected. And one GP told me that the practices in his PCN had worked well together delivering the vaccines. So he said it just made sense to continue as they were, um, as it as had been working well. But he did say that um, there probably should be some local flexibility to allow others who might prefer to jab individually or at individual practices just to make sure that they're happy to. Um, Nick, you've spoken to some people who feel a bit differently though, haven't you? Yeah, one LMC I spoke to this week said um, one of the PCNs in its patch was meeting this week to decide whether it could possibly take part in the COVID booster campaign because they think it's such a logistical nightmare. Uh, and there were also concerns raised about this at a recent primary care webinar uh, with people warning that they were unable to make an informed choice about signing up for the booster campaign without full details of the flu specification for this year. Yeah, well, it certainly looks like it's going to be a tricky one. But obviously, GP Online will be keeping up to date with um, all the developments on the flu and COVID booster campaign. So this week in England, at least, we've seen the relaxing of almost all COVID-19 regulations with so-called Freedom Day. Obviously, this has caused a lot of anxiety in the NHS with cases rising at an exponential rate and hospitalisations also starting to increase. People are worried about where this could all end up. So let's start by looking at what some of the rule changes mean for general practice. Luke, there's been a change in the rules around self-isolation for NHS staff. Can you explain a bit about what's happened there? Yeah, there has. So NHS workers, including GP practice staff um, who have been fully vaccinated against COVID, won't have to self-isolate and they can attend work after returning a negative PCR test. So it means that those who have been told to self-isolate or have been contacted by NHS test and trace will be permitted to attend work in, quote, exceptional circumstances um, so as well as the negative PCR tests that they'll have to provide before they go back to work um, staff are required to take daily lateral flow tests for a minimum of seven days and um, and it could be anywhere up to 10 days or the completion of the identified self-isolation period um, but NHS workers must continue to self-isolate outside of work with the guidance emphasizing um, that return to work should only be permitted if their absence may lead to significant risk or harm at work um, practices will also have to get this signed off by a number of different authorities, including the local director of infection prevention and control. Um, but overall, the, the aim of this is to just boost the workforce capacity and ensure that those who can be at work are at work with, um, as we all know, NHS services continuing to be incredibly busy and needing all hands um, on deck. And Nick, the use of face masks in practices now they're no longer legally required in England has been a bit of concern, hasn't it? So what's the situation now with that? When the government announced that it planned to go ahead with scrapping most of the pandemic rules from the 19th of July, uh, GPs were really concerned about the fact that initially there was no mention of continuing to require face coverings in healthcare facilities. But we reported last week that the current infection prevention and control guidance, the IPC guidance, would remain in place. Uh, and that's something NHS England has since reiterated. 
and, and the guidance is clear. It says patients in all care areas should still be encouraged and supported to wear a face mask, providing it's tolerated and is not detrimental to their medical or care needs. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. I was just looking around earlier for some various bits on the internet and I discovered there's some now new posters that um, Public Health England has made, which um, practices can put up, which basically says people are still required to wear face masks in healthcare settings. So we'll stick a link to those as well in the description for the podcast. I mean, the other big change is that the standard operating procedure for general practice has been scrapped as well, hasn't it, Nick? That's right. And, and this is something that would be widely welcomed by GPs. The, the SOP, the standard operating procedure, has been a vehicle for NHS England to set out what it expects from GPs during the pandemic. But the BMA has been increasingly worried that it had led to micromanagement and a top-down approach to directives for general practice. Uh, and it's also been at the heart of disputes between the BMA and NHS England over face-to-face appointments. So right at the start of the pandemic, it was the SOP that told GPs to reduce face-to-face contacts with patients and to adopt total triage. Um, but GPs have felt that while telling them to take this approach, NHS England was also fueling a narrative in parts of the media that led to practices facing criticism for being closed, which they haven't been, as we know from the fact that half of all appointments have been in person through the pandemic and GPs are delivering record numbers of appointments. We, we've discussed on the podcast before that talks between NHS England and the BMA's GP committee are suspended. And it was a May update to the SOP that told practices to offer all patients face-to-face appointments that was a catalyst for that relationship breaking down. So one bright note, perhaps, is that with the withdrawal of the SOP, there may be some hope now that talks between GPs and NHS leaders can get back on track at some point. The change in restrictions, as well as the scrapping of the SOP, do you think that's likely to have any impact on the number of face-to-face appointments that practices provide? GPs are obviously already delivering a large number of appointments in person. And NHS England has said that practices should continue to offer a blended approach of face-to-face and remote appointments with digital triage where possible. So on that basis, there isn't an expectation that practices should change their approach. Uh, However, practices are still going to come under pressure simply for following the rules on access. Uh, A Conservative MP said in Parliament last week that GPs should embrace risk and see more patients face to face. And the Health and Social Care Secretary said in response to that, that he expected access to in-person appointments would be better after the 19th of July. I mean, obviously, the other concern with all of the changing rules is rising number of cases. None of the jabs are 100% effective at preventing people from getting COVID-19. Luke, you've reported this week on rising numbers of cases of COVID-19 in people who are double jabbed, which is starting to have an impact on workload in practices. So data from the Zoe COVID study at King's College London estimated that there were 15,537 new daily symptomatic cases in partly or fully vaccinated people based on PCR test data up to the 11th of July. This was almost in line with an estimated 17,581 cases in unvaccinated people. And the study um, goes on to suggest that cases among vaccinated people could overtake those who are um, unvaccinated in the coming days. And this data seems to reflect what is being seen um, on the ground by GPs. Um, So one GP told me that he's encountering increasing numbers of uh, patients who are fully vaccinated contracting COVID. The GP at this particular practice said that patients have been getting in touch with the sort of classic triad of coronavirus symptoms, but also reporting different ones, such as sort of runny noses, sore throats and headaches, which have been more commonly known with sort of other variants um, like the Delta variant. 
So the, I think one of the key things here was that a lot of people who were um, sort of coming in with these symptoms of getting in touch with the GPs, they hadn't been for a PCR test because they thought that the vaccines were a bulletproof vest um, against the virus. So GPs have been having to send these people off to get tested, which is sort of a job in itself after consulting with them. And although double jabbed patients are unlikely to require hospitalisation, which is obviously great news uh, for many that are contacting surgeries. It's just adding to the workload of, of GPs because obviously they're requiring some input. So this is where we're seeing the increase in workload for primary care teams because they're having to treat more patients in the community. Thanks, Luke. Don't forget you can read more about all of the news affecting primary care on our website at gponline.com. So I'm joined today by Dr. Gail Olsop, who is a GP in Derbyshire and Associate Professor of Primary Care at Nottingham University. She's also the RCGP's clinical lead for clinical policy and has been leading a lot of the college's work around long COVID or post-COVID-19 syndrome, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So thanks so much for joining us, Gail. I was wondering if we could start by getting a bit of a picture about how much of an issue long COVID is. I mean, how many people in the UK are suffering from long COVID? And is there any sort of thoughts about which people are most affected by it? So, yeah, this is a big question, isn't it? And it depends which studies or which surveys you look at. If we take the ONS, the Office for National Statistics figures, um, in July this year, they have said that there's almost a million people. So just slightly less than there was a month ago, about 962,000 people with symptoms lasting longer than four weeks. And the four week mark is when we define long COVID. If you look to 12 weeks, the number of people that are suffering from symptoms lasting longer than 12 weeks, then actually it drops a little bit, but it's still over 850,000 people. And it's at the 12 week mark that we start to talk about post COVID syndrome, if we're using the definitions that, that NICE has come up with. Now, I've read in some places that women seem to be more affected than men by long COVID. Is that is that right? So, yes, absolutely. If you look at a lot of the data that's coming out, it is more women than men that are affected by the long COVID symptoms or post-COVID syndrome. But it's really important to note that both men and women can be affected. It's just men are affected to a lesser extent. And indeed, every age group can be affected. So it doesn't matter whether you are nine or 99, you can still be affected by this condition. Has the RCGP got any um, picture about how long COVID is impacting on practices workload? Is there any sort of estimate about sort of how many people practices and average practices seeing in a week with long COVID? So we haven't gone down to the detail of how many practices, but we do know it's having an impact. And of course, it depends on which practice you're looking at, because this isn't necessarily spread evenly across the country. The areas that were more affected by COVID will, of course, have more long COVID cases. Um, what we do know, however, is practices are affected, not just because of the number of people, but because of the number of times people come to present with this syndrome. Patients need to turn up to primary care, not only to get a diagnosis, but to be seen, to be heard. And of course, these are very complex presentations. So it's not going to be covered in a simple 10 minute appointment. Patients may need to come back several times to get a full history, a full biopsychosocial assessment. And then they'll need to come back for investigations before we can make that final diagnosis. And even when they've got the diagnosis, they need to keep coming back to see us for that onward care, help with rehabilitation, help back into work. So absolutely, it's impacting on the workforce. So obviously this week we've seen the relaxation of almost all restrictions relating to COVID and we've had scientists predicting we could hit 200,000 cases per day. Obviously with the increase in acute infections it means we're more likely potentially to see more cases of long COVID. 
Are you worried about this? And do you think enough consideration has been given to cases of long COVID as part of these decisions to relax restrictions? So I guess the first thing to say is I'm sure consideration has been taken because it's very clear, not only across all of the the media, but also from patient groups that are lobbying government, as well as all the the medical profession professionals and allied healthcare professionals, that we are seeing more and more cases um, with increasing number of acute COVID cases. So yes, of course, we are concerned that we may see more. And I think particularly if you think about the age group that this mostly affects, those 35 to 59, if you look at a lot of the figures that are coming out that's the most common age group although it does affect all other age groups and this of course is an age group where we have less vaccination at the moment so potentially we have a a more at-risk population however we've got to weigh that up this is a different variant the delta variant we haven't yet seen the impact on long covid with so we might find we don't have as many as we expect we haven't yet seen the impact of vaccination and how that impacts on on the number of people getting long covid so i think we're concerned but we don't really yet know what this will mean for this condition. So what are the main symptoms that GPs would see people presenting with long COVID? And when should a patient be diagnosed with long COVID? Right. So I think this is really important that we go back to using the terminology and think about the terminology that we're using. So long COVID is a patient defined term. And I think this is really important that the patients did define it and patients will continue to keep using this term. But a little bit like as GPs, we talk about skin infections with patients, but we actually code them with cellulitis or we talk about uh, glandular fever, but we code infectious mononucleosis. We have our medical terminology for this condition as well. So at four weeks, we consider the acute infection has finished, the acute COVID's finished. And then between four and 12 weeks, what NICE has termed this ongoing symptomatic phase um, is where GPs will be doing all the investigations and ruling out any other causes um, for, for the symptoms that are presenting to them. Once we get to the 12-week mark, this is then when we call it post-COVID syndrome. And if we look at the definition for that, this is actually signs and symptoms that developed either during the the acute infection or subsequently that continue after that 12-week mark and can't be explained by anything else. So at the moment, this is a diagnosis of exclusion. And really importantly, it's clusters of symptoms and it's across any system in the body. And those signs and symptoms can change all the time. So it's a really complex and difficult condition to look at. We're looking at most common symptoms. What I think the vast majority of us in primary care are seeing fatigue and breathlessness. Um, A lot of the breathlessness when we're talking to the post-COVID clinics is disordered breathing rather than underlying pathology. But of course, one of the key things GPs need to do is to make sure we're not missing a red flag. We're not missing a PE or an an ongoing infection or indeed lung fibrosis, particularly for those who have been hospitalised or or on ITU. But so many, so many different symptoms that, that could present to us. When do we diagnose? Will we diagnose post-COVID syndrome at 12 weeks or if we've ruled everything out beforehand? But we can call this long COVID with our patients at any time after four weeks. So really terminology just depends on the time when they present to us. You mentioned earlier that it can affect any age, but I do think there's quite a, a misunderstanding about how and if it does affect children. What are the kind of statistics around how much it affect, affects kids? So we are seeing some cases in children, and this is all case, all, all ages of children, um, not 
nearly in the same numbers that we're seeing in the adult population. Of course, we know less children were affected with acute COVID and, and certainly less children were affected severely with acute COVID. And we are seeing a few coming through in primary care, not, not in the significant numbers at all. And I think this is probably reflected even amongst NHS England's take on, on the clinics. They've, I think they've, they've announced 83 clinics now. But they also now have got 15 paediatric clinics because we are seeing some cases that where where children will need to be helped. Thankfully, what we are also seeing, I think, is a lot of these children are slowly getting better. And there's a great research study at the moment underway called the CLOCK study, where they're actually comparing um, what's happened to children with ongoing symptoms, the long COVID, to, to children who didn't have COVID at all, and actually just comparing what was the impact the pandemic on those children because what we don't know is is this partly the pandemic partly the lockdown partly the lack of schooling or is this actually all long covid and, and at the moment we just have to keep our minds open but without a doubt we are seeing some children with symptoms that then need onward referral if a gp's done all the assessments and they've decided a patient has got post-covid 19 syndrome what should they do and how should they be managed? So I think if we just take a step back, the first thing to say is about the red flags are really, really important. So when someone presents to us, I think what we absolutely need to do is take that bigger picture. Is is this really long COVID, post-COVID syndrome? Just because a patient tells us it is, it may not be. And if someone's short of breath, they could be anemic, they could be pregnant. If it was a young woman, they could have lung cancer, for example. So we've got to make sure that those urgent investigations are looked at and, and people are cleared. Once we get to the point that we don't think there is any other cause for their symptoms, then actually it's about shared care decision making with that patient. So there are some patients who just knowing they've got the diagnosis and knowing that this is actually what it is, being believed, being listened to, is absolutely important. That whole doctor is the drug that I think many of us have have sort of worked from in in general practice. Many of us in our training um, have realised how important that therapeutic relationship is with patients and sometimes just knowing what's wrong. And and having that support is really important. But there are others who need much more help than that. So, of course, if this is something that if you're in England, there are the post-COVID clinics. And if you feel your patient can't be looked after in primary care because they're very complex, they've got multi-system symptoms, then you can refer on to a post-COVID clinic. But equally, you can also manage some of these patients in primary care if you have the time, the inclination and the knowledge. Um, we, we all have our community rehab um, programs, but there's also things like Your COVID Recovery, a website that we can signpost our patients to. We've got our social prescribers in primary care. So it very much depends on the impact of the patient, on that shared decision making between you and the patient as to well, what they want, what you think they need. But also a lot of it will depend on our own knowledge as a GP. Um, and don't underestimate that, that actually a lot of GPs, we know a little bit about this, but we're by no means experts in this at all. And because the knowledge is changing all the time, it's really, really difficult to keep on top of all the information that's coming out. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned there that NHS England has set up these specialist clinics uh, that GPs can refer people into. How does the referral process for that work? And are GPs finding it easy for patients to access this specialist support? I mean, what are the waiting lists like, for example? So all of this is a, a depends, I'm afraid. Um, and I wish, I wish it was all the same across the country. Um, so the referrals are different because every single system was told to set up a clinic. 
And actually, there's a very good colleague of mine who describes it as building the plane as you fly it. So these clinics were being set up as patients were being referred into them. And this is a brand new disease and everybody's learning and upskilling with this disease at the same time as setting up the clinic. So don't underestimate how difficult that's been for the system to do so. And every clinic's doing it slightly different. So you have the, the original clinic, which was in UCL in London, where they're asking their primary care teams to fill in lots of uh, questionnaires with their patients to do face-to-face examinations and, and to then send the patients on to the clinics. I actually work in a post-COVID clinic in Derbyshire, which is run by GPs, interestingly. It's a fantastic clinic, a complete biopsychosocial um, assessment by GP. So we can see all ages, we can see all conditions that are affected by this, because of course, in general practice, we are those expert medical generalists. And in our clinic, we just ask to a simple referral form that comes through and the patients fill in a couple of questionnaires to help us. And then within the clinic, we have a care coordinator that that contacts our patients and keeps them in the loop as we're going along. But we are seeing an exponential increase in referrals to these clinics. Um, You know, in in my clinic, for example, 30 or 40 per week being referred into a clinic. And so those waiting lists are getting longer and longer and longer. And, you know, I know there's one clinic that has 900 people waiting on a waiting list, others three or 400. Um, So patients are going to have to be waiting longer. And that's after they've done all of the investigation in primary care to get to the point of referral. So more work needs to be done. I think there are some clinics who are beginning to push things back into primary care, which I think we have to be really cautious about. Because if the clinics are, you know, they've been set up to say we're fantastic and we're going to take all these patients off you, but actually they're overwhelmed and they start to push the work back into primary care without the funding following it, then I think we're potentially going to have a problem. So it really does depend across the country at, at the, not only the stage of the clinic, some have been open for a year, some have been open for a few months, but also the expertise that's running it and the way in which that referral happens. Is England fairly well, has, has every GP got access in England to one of those clinics or is it is it a bit patchy still? No, so according to NHS England, they've set up the 83 clinics and they are in the process of setting up the 15 children's clinics across England. So they tell us that every GP should have access. Now, um, it may be partly that some of the systems are early in the setup of their clinics, um, which may mean that, that the full process have not been set up yet. But I would encourage any GP who doesn't think they have access to a clinic to actually approach their CCG or their ICS and just say, well, you know, what are the facilities? And I think one of the confusing things is that initially a lot of clinics were set up just for hospitalised patients by our respiratory colleagues. And actually the post-COVID clinic set up by NHS England are different from these. So just be really careful when you're looking at your referrals on on the systems to make sure you're sending them to the post-COVID clinic that will deal with everything, that holistic assessment, not just the respiratory side, because otherwise you might get your referral bounce back if it's not specifically uh, a respiratory element of, of this condition. And in do you do you know what the picture's like in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland? Do, do GPs there have access to specialist services as well? Now, in Scotland and Wales at the moment, they've decided not to go ahead with setting up these multidisciplinary clinics and everything is very much in primary care. So this is a condition where we're holding on to risk. It's a multi-system disease. It's likely to become a long-term condition. 
um, it's it presents with an, an undifferentiated presentation. So it's a very typical primary care condition and one which I think we're very good at looking after, but of course are overwhelmed by the numbers that are coming through. So Wales and Scotland at the moment are holding off and saying, well, let's see what we can do in primary care and let's set up our community rehabilitation services, which is the vast majority of what these patients need in terms of treatment. And they're setting up a, a recovering from COVID type pathway within the community. Northern Ireland have been in that position, but I do understand they are now planning to open up some multidisciplinary clinics later on in the year, although they don't have any at the moment. So England are following one pathway and everyone else something different. And we are hoping that there will be some research into the best pathway or the most appropriate pathway for these patients that will tell us actually who is doing the right thing or does it matter whether you have a clinic or not? Or indeed, is it better and should we all be having these clinics? One of the things I find quite fascinating about long COVID is it just seems to affect basically any organ in the body in many different ways, depending on the patient. So how do these clinics go about helping people that have such a variety of problems? Yeah, so I think that the first thing to say, that list of symptoms goes on and on and on when you talk to patients. And we, we've talked very much about the most common being fatigue and shortness of breath, but but also something that perhaps many of us in primary care had never seen before was this dysautomnia type picture where people are presenting with the postural tachycardia type approach where they stand up and they get palpitations, which makes them short of breath, that then makes them dizzy, so they have to lie down as a sort of cardiac type presentation, as well as the brain fog, the cognitive fatigue that people are getting. And then there are others, there's the skin rashes and there's the diarrhea that people are getting and and the joint aches and the neurological symptoms so the list goes on and on and on now in primary care of course we're used to dealing with that undifferentiated presentation and looking and and seeing which which is the best approach from a secondary care point of view or when we get into the post-covid clinic wherever that is based we are now pulling pulling in what we're calling virtual multidisciplinary or multi-professional clinics So if I explain how it works in the Derbyshire Clinic with me, GPs see patients and we get an hour's appointment with with our patients so we can really fully assess them. And a lot of it we can sort out with time uh, and talking to the patient. But actually there are some things we need expert help with. So we will then once a week have a virtual multidisciplinary meeting with our secondary care colleagues um, from all disciplines. So whether it's neurology or cardiology or ENT or all of the systems that are affected and we all gather in one room with a rehabilitation consultant, which I think is really, really important to have that oversight. And we also have a, an MDT with all the different therapists involved because, of course, this affects uh, you know, needs on the system, which dietitians may help with or physios or occupational health or vocational rehabilitation. So many, many therapists, as well as the, the specialists in secondary care. And what we do is we use those secondary care um, experts to guide us, not only in treatment, but also in investigation. If we need rapid access to secondary care investigations, then then they they get it. And the same thing is happening in other clinics. So, again, I've mentioned UCL um, and and I know a little bit about that just because of working fairly closely with them. But they do the same thing. They have a virtual MDT and many of the other clinics are following on in this way. So there's a person who assesses um, the patient and in some areas it will be um, very senior consultants and in some areas it will be more junior um, secondary care staff or GPs as it is in our community clinic. But then we use that virtual MDT to get the help and advice from the systems without patients having to navigate multiple different outpatient appointments, which is really, really useful for them, but also for the system itself. NHS England um, have recently announced a new enhanced service for long COVID, which started this month. What's your view on the service? And do you think it's going to help practices better manage long COVID? So 
for me, the two key things that this covers are education and coding. And these two things are absolutely crucial for, for primary care. So education, we've, we've mentioned a little bit already, but if our primary care colleagues, and we're not just talking about GPs here, we're talking about the whole team, we're talking about our receptionists as well as our nurses, as well as our social prescribers and our pharmacists, we all need to understand that this is a real condition. We all need to understand that if patients present saying they think they've got long COVID, that we need to believe them and empower them and, and listen to them and, and fully investigate them. And if we don't upskill our practice staff and we don't give them time to learn, then actually that's going to be detrimental to patients. And and coding, of course, is important. And, and one of the things that, that comes out of this is the need to code. And we've had a few issues setting up the coding. You know, it takes time for codes to get into the system. It takes time for people to understand and, and learn that the codes are there. But again, if we don't empower primary care to code, we won't know the true prevalence of this disease, which means we won't be able to add the resource. Because if NHS England say to us, well, actually, there's only... 15,000 people across the country that have been coded with this diagnosis, therefore we're only going to provide 15,000 patients worth of service, then I think we are doing a big detriment. So for me, I think that they are two really key things. I hope practices will sign up to them, um, but time will tell whether they decide to or not. So there's a lot of research going on um, and obviously a lot of research that needs to be done to better understand post-COVID-19 syndrome. What do you think the key areas are that we need to look at and that will benefit general practice and primary care? What things would be most useful for GPs to know about? So from a primary care point of view, I think it's what is the right pathway for these patients? Because at the moment, we're all trying to work it out as we go. So if we can have some research which actually looks at which is the best approach for these patients and what is the best treatment. And, and that may be drug trial type treatment. It may be that we develop some drugs that, that help or cure uh, the longer term symptoms. But equally, are we doing the right thing with rehabilitation and the rehabilitation approach that we're taking at the moment? Are we doing the right thing with the clinics? Because if we can have the evidence of what the right pathway is, then actually it will enable GPs to refer those patients on appropriately or indeed manage them themselves in practice. If we get a drug or we get a blood test that can diagnose this, then, then of course that will help us. But we have to match that with the right funding and resource in primary care. What we can't do is take on another million patients with a significant complex disease in primary care without that help and support. And certainly that's one of the things that, that we are pushing for um, from a Royal College point of view. And we keep talking about is, is making sure that the primary care is resourced within primary care but also with the community diagnostics that we need to prevent the bottlenecks, but also with the, you know, the onward referral for rehabilitation to make sure our community colleagues have enough resources as well. I mean, are there any treatments available for post-COVID-19 syndrome at the minute? Is there anything that you can prescribe or any, you know, particular type of rehabilitation that helps? So it depends on the symptoms that the patient's got. Um, if we if we have someone presenting with some of the most common symptoms, the fatigue and the shortness of breath, what we're finding is that Whilst there are some people with pathology associated with that fatigue and shortness of breath, the vast majority have what we call disordered breathing. And for those, rehabilitation and physiotherapy, particularly respiratory physio, is working really well. But equally, we're seeing other wonderful things coming out of the woodwork as well. So 
the English National Opera, for example, ran um, a singing workshop and, and do some, some singing therapy with patients, which again is helping with that disordered breathing. Um, I'm working with the Royal Scottish Ballet at the moment, and we're looking for uh, to develop a programme in there. The, the Royal Scottish Ballet for Health um, do programmes with other with neurological diseases, Parkinson's, dementia, multiple sclerosis, for example, and we're looking at a programme for rehabilitation with them. In terms of other symptoms, so fatigue management, we've got a lot of expertise in this country on fatigue management uh, about making sure patients um, you know, manage that fatigue, thinking about their whole body, not just the physical impact of fatigue, but the psychological impact of fatigue as well. So we're using some of those techniques. When we're coming to other more weird and wonderful symptoms that present with long COVID, so for example, those who are presenting with the dysautonomia type approach, those that are presenting with palpitations, we know um, as long as we've ruled out all of those red flags, we make sure they haven't got myocarditis, haven't got pericarditis, we're not putting them at risk, that actually over time they tend to get better. But if it's massively impacting um, on their day-to-day life, then there are things that we can prescribe. So we start with lifestyle measures like we do with everything, increasing your water, increasing your salt, maybe flight socks but there are beta blockers that we can use and other drugs if indeed they, they, uh, people are finding they're not working if people have got skin rashes and these can be really troublesome um, using antihistamines equally with diarrhea we're finding some evidence with the h1 and h2 blockers that actually might help patients with their diarrhea symptoms but again what we need is a randomized control trial because we don't know how much of this is placebo how much of this is chance how much of this is just because it, things are happening to get better. So we really need those trials in place to make sure we're doing the right thing. Can you explain a little bit more about what other things the college is doing? I mean, I know you're involved in things like education and obviously it sounds like you're talking to lots of different organisations, but what what's the RCGP doing to help GPs? So from our GPs, taking out all the policy work that we're doing and trying to make sure that we've got all the right funding and resources, some of the things that, that we've, we're doing is education is really important. So we have written an e-learning, which was only updated in June this year with some incredible experts across this field um, that that we've managed to pull together. And that e-learning was launched. So um, I would encourage any GP or practice team member to go and have a look at that. And it's free to everybody. You don't have to be a member of the the Royal College to be able to access that. And we've already started to get feedback from across the world um, because we've left it open to everybody rather than putting that behind a paywall. We've hosted webinars again to make sure we're bringing all of the experts into one room. And if you Google um, webinar rewind from a Royal College point of view and and put in post-COVID syndrome, you again will will find that webinar. Have a look. It's got some fantastic presentations, um, some, some really good experts in that. And as of September, we will also be offering a monthly education network for GPs. And this is called um, an ECHO, which is in collaboration with NHS Northern Ireland. And, and what we're trying to create is a safe space for GPs to learn together. And I think this is really important that we all need to learn from each other because what GPs in Scotland are doing will help me in Derbyshire. What I'm doing in Derbyshire will help GPs in Cardiff, for example. And what we want to do is bring together this virtual network, which we will be announcing and launching very soon. Um, The first one's the first week in September. And I would would encourage any GP to come to that. And then you'll hopefully then be able to feedback all that information down to the practice team as well. Obviously, the college have been involved in developing the dice and sign guidance, which you touched on earlier. How often is that likely to be looked at and revisited? Obviously, because this is a condition that we're learning more about sort of week by week. Are those guidelines likely to be updated regularly, do you think? 
Yeah, so the great thing about that guideline, it's one of the first times ever that Sign and NICE have come together and certainly with an external organisation like the Royal College and we realised how important this condition was going to be in primary care and how much work GPs were going to be doing around this subject very early on from our members. Um, what we've what we've decided with this guideline, it's called a living guideline, which means the evidence is being reviewed every single week from a nice and sign point of view. And the moment it gets to the point where they think that evidence becomes significant that would change the recommendations and the guidance, they're going to look at it and update it. And at the moment, they have just called together the, the expert panel again to actually start to pull together um, a review of the guidance, which we hope, well, all of these things take a long time, but we hope within a few months we will have a an updated version. Now, will it change very much? I, I don't know because we haven't seen all the evidence yet, but actually all, a lot of the research in this condition is at the very early stages. Um, so we might not get readouts of a, of a lot of the research that will impact on the guidance for some time to come, but absolutely this will be looked at on a very, very regular basis. We've talked about quite a lot of issues today, but is there anything else specifically that you'd like GPs to bear in mind when they're thinking about long COVID? I think from my point of view, it, don't underestimate how frightened these patients are. And I think that would probably be my my lasting my lasting memory really of, of the patients that I've seen along the way. I think particularly those who were diagnosed or with COVID months and months ago, maybe a year ago, that they've been battling this condition by themselves in fear of the impact that this has on them, on their lives, on their families, on their jobs. Um, so don't don't underestimate how frightened people are when they come to see you but also support your own practice team because there are many of us in health and social care who had acute COVID. Many will have the ongoing symptoms as well. And whilst secondary care has ongoing sick leave from um, a, a long COVID point of view, that wasn't matched in primary care. So supporting our teams as well as we can, um, encouraging them back to work when they're able, supporting them to come back to work um, over a phased return back in is, of course, really, really helpful. because so we want to try and make, retain as many people in primary care as we can do. Um, but this condition has affected us as much as it has everyone else in the, in the country. Thanks so much to Dr. Olsop for speaking to me. You can find out more details about long COVID, including links to some of the education materials produced by the RCGP in the description for this episode. We've just got time for our regular good news spot. This week, we want to highlight some positive developments with the GP Data for Research and Planning, or GPDPR. If you remember, we spoke about this on the podcast a few weeks ago. This is the scheme that's planning to extract all patient data from GP records to NHS Digital to help inform future research and healthcare planning. This week, the government announced that the scheme would be further delayed while additional work was undertaken to ensure tougher safeguards are in place to protect patient information, which is something a lot of GPs have been calling for. Luke, what's going on? So as you say, the government delayed starting the GP DPR programme until the 1st of September this year after concerns that it was being rushed through and that patients didn't know enough about what was um, potentially happening with their data. It's now, the government has now gone one step further and they've announced that there will be sort of no specific start date um, for the extraction of data. Instead, um, it's going to 
um, start their program depending on four key criteria that need to be met um, and sort of address some of the concerns that we've reported on before. Um, so the first is that the government has to ensure that patients have the ability to opt out at any point. And the government has also said that it will ensure that the backlog of backlog of opt-outs um, by patients has been fully cleared before data extraction starts. Patients will also made to be more aware of the scheme through a campaign of engagement and communication. And the fourth point is that a trusted research environment will be developed. Um, so the BMA and the RCGP have both um, been encouraged by the announcement saying that it will allow more time for improvements and uh, it will help to build understanding and trust among the public and the healthcare system. Another key point to highlight is that the government has said it's continuing to explore ways to centralise the GP data type 1 opt-out process, um, which would take this responsibility away from GPs and make it easier for patients to, to back out. So um, the further delay seems to be definitely a good sign um, and it's being more thoroughly thought through like many have asked. Thanks, Luke. If you have any examples of good news from general practice that you would like us to highlight on future episodes of the podcast, either relating to work going on in your practice or community or the achievements of someone in your team, then do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. That's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice and lots of other information for GPs and primary care teams at gponline.com. Thank you for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke and also to Dr Gail Olsop for speaking with us this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, please do get in touch on Twitter at GPOnlineNews or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can rate us and subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back soon. See you then.